please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, coming back now to our series entitled, Things to Come. This will be actually the fifth week <clears throat> that we've studied these things together. We're launching out through Matthew 24 and 25. We have today, and I think probably three more times, three more studies after this to conclude the things that the Lord's put in my heart for us and to kind of finish up these passages together. But you'll remember by review thus far, we have talked in great detail about the tribulation. That seven-year period, uh, Daniel's 70th week, that final prophetic week concerning Israel, a time of great trouble and persecution. We've talked about the Antichrist, his role during that time, one who will come into power, an end-time world power. We looked specifically at his confirming of a peace covenant there in Israel, the breaking of that covenant midway through the peace covenant, the abomination of desolation. We've talked about and looked at closely the, some of the judgments of the tribulation, this, this time of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, things being poured out upon the earth like never before. And of course, we've talked about what we believe is the rapture of the church, that Jesus coming for his bride and delivering her from that time of judgment and wrath. And today, I want to begin speaking to you about his return. At the end of this seven-year tribulation that we've been looking at in some detail, it culminates with the return of Christ, the physical return of Jesus to the earth. And that's what we want to take a look at in today and I believe next Sunday as well. Kind of five things that will stand out to us and I'll give them to you now, and then we'll look at our text and look at some of at least two of these things here this morning. Concerning his return, I want us to consider once again his warnings. I want us to consider his appearing, his victory, his judgment, and his kingdom. Take a look with me now. Matthew 24, we're picking it up now in verse 23. Matthew 24, and we have come this far in our study. We pick it up now in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great things and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great shout of a trumpet, 
and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the end of the age. They asked him specific questions about future events, some concerning the destruction of the temple, but also asking the questions about the end of the age, this age, the end of the age and your return. Them, the disciples foreseeing a future kingdom of Christ upon the earth and wanting to know the timing of these things. Jesus has been answering that throughout Matthew 24. And we come here today and we see Jesus talking about really the culmination of the tribulation, which is his physical return to the earth. Notice again his warning. The warning against spiritual deception. Look at verse 24 again. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now this warning has gone through this entire chapter. Look up at verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Look then again at verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the end times in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaks of signs and lying wonders an unrighteous deception, strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Spiritual deception is the dominant sign of the end times. It seems to be the thing Jesus repeats most often in his discourse here. Warning after warning, don't be deceived because deception will be the sign of the time. There will be great spiritual deception throughout the last days, throughout the tribulation, and continuing all the way up until his return. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Deception is possible, as he said, even the elect. The deception will be so strong that even the elect will be tempted to be deluded, but they don't need to be because Jesus is forewarning and the Spirit of God will continue to warn. But that's the thing about deception. Listen, it can be very persuasive. Great signs and wonders. If possible, even the elect. There is a blindness to truth that seeps in for those that do not love the truth. And then false beliefs, they begin to believe something that is not the truth. What are the ways that we are protected as Christians? Well, obviously, Jesus is warning is one way, and that is just, look, heed the warning. Recognize the danger. Don't imagine that you're immune to deception. That's for all the, the, the simple-minded folks, the easily deceived, not me. No, Jesus is talking to his disciples who's, whom he has spent years with, and he's saying, guys, be careful, be aware. Overconfidence or a lack of diligence is almost a sure sign of vulnerability to deception. The guy who thinks he can't be deceived is really the guy who's most vulnerable to deception. Pride. That's what pride is. I, I, that can't happen. Not me. I now, that's the very thing that will lead you. Pride is a, often a vehicle that leads to deception. The Bible also talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the truth. If you're living in sin, 
there's already a deception that is working and operating in your life. If you're accommodating sin in your life, but thinking that you're not going to miss the truth when it's available, you're already living in a, in a deception. Sin, living in sin, living compromised, makes you vulnerable to deception. And it can happen even to a Christian. You can get caught up in, 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 a, in a practice, in a habit, in a stronghold, and you think you're managing it, but it's managing you. And it's also open, opening you up to the vulnerability of deception. If that's your, your, the case for you today, listen, repent. Confess. Receive forgiveness and purpose to walk in victory. Don't keep playing with sin. It has a deceptive power. Get it dealt with. That doesn't mean you're going to walk in perfection, but it means when you do sin, you're quick to repent and get it right. You're not accommodating. You're not justifying. You're not secretly trying to manage. You're living in the light. That's a place of safety and the protection against deception. The other thing that the scripture talks about is the love of the truth. Do you love the truth? 2 Thessalonians 2.10 The deception comes because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. There is the love of the truth. The love from Jesus who is the truth. That has to be received in your heart. And I believe it's also the love of the truth is the love for Jesus, who is the truth. There is this relationship with Christ, this abiding with Him, His love working in your heart and your love flowing toward Him. That protects you. That's a love of the truth. And the deception comes to those that did not receive the love of the truth. Do you love the Word of God? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be complete? Do you want to be thoroughly equipped? You've got to love the truth. And Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, is what God has provided for you and I to light our path, to protect us from deception. Listen, we're talking here, of course, about the, the great deception that will come in the very last days. But are we not seeing something of this in our own time? Do you not see that, that society is becoming less and less connected, tethered to the truth of God's Word and things are becoming more and more subjective to man's wisdom and rationales. And, and that is just the kind of the, the primer. These, the, the society, the culture is already showing that it does not love the truth. We're seeing this manifested in our own, in our own culture. You know, again, our, our president this week sent out an edict for the land that all schools in the United States will allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. Now listen, you know, church, I, this, is, this pulpit is not for political purpose, and I'm not trying to make a political statement. But I'm telling you that this pulpit is to preach spiritual truth. And there are times when spiritual and biblical correctness will collide with political correctness. 
And so we have to, we have to recognize these things. And again, I'm not trying to, to make a deal of that. It, it is a deal. But what I'm trying to point out is that this is, you can see that this is a work of a spiritual deception. The culture is becoming disconnected with anything objective concerning truth. Our sexuality is now based on how we feel about it. It's totally subjective. Biology, that's not how we determine sexual gender. No, it's all on the basis of, and it's a disconnect from the foundations of truth. Listen, we were created by God. Created in the image of God. Genesis says, He made them in His image, male and female. Gender is not something that you wake up and decide on your own. Gender is something that God has inherently crafted into His creation. You are made in the image of God. And to say, I don't want to be that, is to rebel against the one who created you that way. Now it sounds very, so tolerant and so accepting, but that's the deception. It's disconnecting from the foundation of God and his word and the culture and the society is paying the price for it. Do you think these things are going to lead us into some good place as a nation? Are we going to be more at peace, more moral? Are we going to see a greater unity? No. Because when you begin to disconnect from, listen, when, you're, when you drift, if, you don't, if you're not anchored to something, you're, you can be lo- you're going to be lost at sea. You're going to be shipwrecked. And that's what's going on. This is a deception. And isn't it interesting? Don't you see? I, okay, I'm a little on this today. It's very current, all right? It's very real. Do you see, isn't it interesting that it's all about where, uh, the, the, the law is all, is going to be enforced where? In the schools. Why the schools? Well, that's where the children are. That's where the kids are. That's where the next generation is. And if we can teach them that gender has got nothing to do with creation or God or biology, it's just about how you, what you choose. If we can get that sewn into the next generation, what do you think the next generation will look like when there is even a greater distance and disconnect from truth? It's demonic. It's an attack of the... And again, I'm not making a political statement. I'm not attacking a group of people. I love these people. They need Jesus. We're we're all this way. We all want to disconnect from the truth of God and live our own way. That's human nature. That's not unique to transgender or other sins. But to say that it's good and, and we all ought to live that way, I think is a mistake. You know, the children are important. You know, we have an opportunity in church to minister to children. You see why I'm a little troubled when I see our children's ministry servants kind of being depleted and no one's, I mean, what's going on here? We need to get in there and minister to those kids. We need to love on those kids. 
Now listen, I'm not saying this as a threat, but I actually prayed this. Lord, do you want me to get a guest speaker once a month and a guest worship leader once a month and me and my wife will go serve those kids? Jesus loves those kids. And there ought to be, there ought to be a line waiting to love on them and minister to them. Guilt is not a good motivator, so don't, don't let this make you feel guilty. <laughs> um, but feel inspired. Church, we're living in these days. We're reading about a time of tribulation, but you're living in the precursor to it. We have got to do what God has called us to do as a church, to touch the lives of the next generation that God gives us access to and to minister the truth of His Word. Secondly, today, let's talk about His appearing. First thing we notice, a number of things here concerning His appearing from our text. First thing we notice is that it will be publicly, He will be publicly, clearly seen. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus' return is not going to be some private or secret appearing. And so don't go out to the desert. Don't believe them if they say, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's come to us. He's appeared to me. Don't believe any of that. And beware of those who claim to have an exclusive revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how cults gain traction. They have the, the secret truth. They have the, the exclusive truth that the rest of the Christian faith doesn't embrace, but they have extra special revelation. And Jesus is warning, look, that's the way deception works. Always, hey, we know the real Jesus. We have seen the real truth. And Jesus says, look, when I return, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like lightning that, cross, that flashes across the sky. Very public, very clear. The second thing we notice is something that he says about the timing. The timing and the heavenly signs that accompany his appearing. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days... And of course, we know that he's been talking specifically about that seven-year period of tribulation. He's talked about the abomination of desolation, the persecution, the signs. And after those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Concerning the timing of his return or this appearing, it comes at the end of the tribulation of those days, and it will be accompanied with these heavenly signs, immediately preceded by these heavenly signs, signs like we've never seen before, signs of really almost the heavens, the, the universe itself changing. The sun and moon are darkened. The, sun, the stars begin to fall from heaven out of orbit. We don't know exactly what this looks like, but Jesus is saying there's going, that the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. This is going to be a dramatic event. Luke tells us in Luke 21, similar language. Again, he quotes Jesus, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. These events, for those that are here upon the earth during this ordeal, for them, those that have been living through and suffering the persecution and the judgment and the wrath of God during the tribulation, when they see these signs, they're not going to be fearful. They're not going to be panicked. They're going to know it's He's coming. My redemption is near. This is something to look for for redemption, not to look for in fear and anxiety as those who do not know Christ will be feeling. That's where the distress of nations will be, the perplexity, men's hearts failing. And again, I want to just remind you of the time in which we live. You know, I think that we can sense that we are close to these times by what we see going on in the world today. And that's, that's something of what Jesus taught, that, these, that there would be birth pangs, that you would see these things coming and accelerating and becoming more and more prominent as the day approaches. The scripture seems to give us that sense. And so we see even today, you know, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, the earth, the sun, the stars, the moon, everything is going to be radically shaken and changed. But today, we actually see almost something, if you will, of a religion of trying to save the environment. Now, I know I'm sounding really political today. I tell you, I'm not political, and I got all these politics that are on my mind this morning. But again, it's because, to me, it shows the setting of the stage. It's like, these are the things that will lend to the deception, the Antichrist, his rise to power, his bringing the world together under his rule, this whole global warming kind of program. And again, I, I don't even know enough about it to speak of it, except to see that the whole world is chasing after, you know, saving the earth. I have a quote here from an MIT professor. He says this, global warming has become a religion. A surprisingly large number of people seem to have concluded that all that gives meaning to their lives is the belief that they are saving the planet by paying attention to their carbon footprint. Now that seems, that, that's, that's true. People are so caught up in, in the creation, but nobody seems to be paying attention to the creator. Something is wrong. Romans 1.25 talks about uh, people that exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Now, I believe in stewardship. The Bible teaches it. I believe we should care for the earth, but I believe we should worship God. I believe that, you know, we, we, should, we should care for our bodies and our health. I think that's a good thing. But you know, some go to the point of worshiping health and worshiping fitness. And again, these things are not evil in themselves unless they become your religion. They become your passion. You're more passionate about the gym than you are about worship. Something is out of balance there. We should care. We are entrusted to be stewards. But listen, these bodies, they're going to grow old and they're going to die. No matter how fit you stay, 
And guess what the Bible says about the earth? It's going to grow old. And God, the creator of it all, is going to come and remake it and save it and rescue it. Listen to Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. Well, that would be just sacrilegious to some of these that are looking to save the planet. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. Salvation is forever. Faith in Jesus Christ gives eternal life. That's where our focus needs to be. Again, let's be good stewards. Let's be careful. Let's be not wasteful. Let's be healthy. Let's, let's, let's look to be good stewards of the earth. But let's worship God. And let's recognize the earth is going to grow old. My body's going to grow old. But God is forever. Salvation is forever. What He has planned is eternal. That's where my hope, that's where my faith is. The earth is also waiting for the fullness of our salvation. Think about this passage, Romans 8, 19. For the earnest expectation of what? The creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Paul tells us that, look, even the creation itself has been cursed by sin. There is a, a subjection that has been put upon the earth, but it's in hope. In the same way that man is saved, when man's salvation becomes complete and Christ returns to the earth and establishes His rule and reign in the earth, so then the earth will be released from its bondage as well. Man will not be saved by saving the earth, but the earth will be saved by the salvation of man through Jesus Christ. Let's get our priorities straight. Let's get our perspectives right. As we read these passages, let's be illuminated. Let's not be deceived. Let's not be caught up. Let's not be chasing rabbit trails of the world's wisdom. Let's walk in the truth. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. As we see these things beginning to take place, believer, don't be fretful. Don't be fearful. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's coming for His church. And for those that are left behind, He will come at the end of the tribulation and He will gather His elect then as well. Jesus is coming. The third thing we look at here, talking again just about His appearance, okay, which is our second point. Uh, but going through subtitles here, the response to his appearance. Look at verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. There's going to be this kind of, you know, watershed moment when Jesus appears and comes to the earth. 
And it's going to create a mourning. Many are going to mourn under the punishment of judgment. You know, the Bible talks in Revelation about those who, who say, ask the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They want no reconciliation with the Lamb. They just want to be rid of His judgment. There is a mourning that does not lead to repentance. It's a mourning of rebellion. Revelation 16.9, they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Even in the face of God, even in the face of Christ's returning in victory, they want nothing to do with him and they rebel against him, but it creates a mourning, a longing that they have to be put under by the judge of all the earth. But some some, I believe, in this passage that are being referenced is, are, are those that will mourn in broken repentance and faith. Let me draw your attention to, and again, I have these for you on the overhead, a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Haddad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, a reference possibly to Armageddon. But this is a prophecy wherein when Jesus returns, in that moment, many of the Jews who have been living through the tribulation are going to see in that moment, they're going to look upon Him whom they pierced. They're going to see the Messiah that they rejected, the Messiah that, they, uh, that their leaders crucified 2,000 years ago, and their hearts are going to be broken. And there's going to be a mourning it says there, it's going to be a spirit of grace and supplication. They're going to, in that instant, see that it was Jesus all along. That it was Jesus that was sent as their Messiah. And there, again, we've studied in the tribulation, many Jews will be coming to faith. And no doubt their witness will prepare the hearts for those who will see him in that moment of his return. Their mourning is over their sin and their rejection, but it will lead them to grace and turning to faith in Jesus. You know, there is a sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads you to repentance it's okay to feel broken in your heart when you realize that you've offended the one who loves you and you come and you repent and you, and you get your heart right, that spirit of grace and supplication. What impresses me here is that it's, we see that it's never too late. Think about it. Some are going to see him in that moment of his return and that's when their hearts are going to cry out in faith. And guess what? They're going to be saved. They're going to be saved. It reminds us of the thief on the cross, doesn't it? Boy, you talk about waiting to the last minute. But Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. As we read through these passages of judgment and God's kind of coming to establish his righteous reign on the earth, it is fearful. I have to admit, some of it is disturbing. But I want you to see through it all, 
There is a God that wants to be merciful. There is a God who wants to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication for any heart that will turn, for anyone that will turn to Jesus. He will rescue, he will save, he will forgive, he will redeem. We'll close here today. It says that he's coming in clouds with great power and glory, and that will lead us next week into what we talk about when we consider his victory. But let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the revelation of truth. Lord, as we study these passages together, we, my prayer, Lord, is that these truths will become something of solid ground beneath our feet. Because, Lord, we're living in perilous times. We, we've got a culture that is adrift. We've got a society that is untethering from the foundations of truth. We've got, we've got a, a generation that's coming up that does not know God. And Lord, we're, we're seeing the, the, the plagues that come to society when God is removed. And Lord, I pray that as we study these passages together, we will be solidified in our faith, we will not be overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. It's good to recognize what's going on. But Lord, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual. May this draw us into deeper walk of prayer. May this draw us into a, more, a greater boldness with our faith. May this draw us into a deeper service unto you. We're living in a time that is almost gone. Night is almost here when no man can work. Lord, help us to be children of the day, living, occupying, diligent until you come. And as our heads are bowed here this morning and we'll close in a song of worship, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here today and you need to respond to the Lord. It may be that you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not know him in a personal way. You've never come to him with a morning of repentance saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Or maybe he's speaking to you today. Maybe, maybe the Lord is drawing you to him and that's his love, that's his mercy. I'd love to pray for you if you want to receive Christ. It's never too late. In the moment that you you see him and embrace him by faith. He, he forgives you. He cleanses you. He rescues you. Maybe you're here today and you need to recommit your life to the Lord. You know what? Maybe, maybe you are caught up in just living in the world. Maybe you've forgotten your spiritual foundation. Maybe you're so distracted with life and, and the busyness and pursuits of your own agenda that you, you're not even really connected to what God wants your heart and life to be about, and you just need to come and resurrender yourself to Him. Recommit your life to the Lord. Your life is passing. This earth is fading, but salvation is forever. Maybe you just need to recommit your heart to the God of your salvation. I'd love to pray for you. If you're here today, you want to receive Christ for the very first time, 
or you need to recommit, rededicate your life to him, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand where you're seated and I'll pray for you. Anybody here today, the Lord speaking to you? Hand in the back. God bless you on the aisle. Another one, a couple hands over here on the right side, my left. There in the center near the aisle. God bless you. Anyone else? Amen. I see you back there. Just before I pray, any other hearts you need, you need this prayer for you. So, Lord, for these hearts responding to you this morning, I pray that you would meet them. And I pray it with confidence, Lord, because I know a sincere heart you will not cast aside. We're amazed today by, by the desire of our God to save. That even in the last moments as Christ returns, for those that see him in the sky and believe, they'll be saved. And so for these hearts here today, Lord, wisely coming to you now as the Holy Spirit is drawing them and knocking on the door of their heart, we come and we say, Jesus, forgive us. We, we're sorry for our sin. We, we mourn for our own way and we, we long for your way in our lives. Forgive us, love us, help us, change us, and lead us, Lord, in a life that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.